the History Channel original podcast. It's 1875, and a young man sits in a Pennsylvania jail cell. He was arrested because his upstart food company is deep in debt, a company he founded during a severe National Depression. To pay off his debts, authorities are ransacking his home nearby. They're confiscating his family's furniture and selling it. But the young man doesn't think of giving up. The man in the jail cell is named Henry J. Hines. He has no way of knowing it, but barely a year later in 1876, his faith in his enterprise will pay off. He'll develop a product that restores his business, wins back financial security for his family, and makes him a household name. Eventually, Heinz will help change the way Americans make and consume their food. I'm Sean Braswell. On this episode of The Food That Built America, a podcast from the History Channel and Ozzy, the story of the H.J. Heinz Company. Here in the U.S., we buy 650 million bottles of Heinz ketchup every year. Globally, the company sells enough individual packets to reach every person on Earth twice. Henry J. Hines was born in Birmingham, Pennsylvania, near Pittsburgh. His father, John Hines, ran a brick company. Young H.J. was out there every day molding and forming bricks. He learned how to be a mason, but that wasn't enough for him. He had the spirit of entrepreneurship. Andy Masick is a historian and president of the John Hines History Center. Henry didn't have to look very far for an example of a successful entrepreneur. His mother, Anna Hines, ran her own small business out of the family garden and kitchen. When Henry was old enough, he began helping her. He started going door to door with a basket with vegetables from his mother's vegetable garden. And by the time he was 12, he was an entrepreneur. Anna, a German immigrant, made food products for busy housewives. Products like grated horseradish. One of the reasons that horseradish was a great product was that it was labor-intensive to make. And he knew, and his mother Anna knew, that women would pay for this product. Rather than grating their own horseradish and bruising their own knuckles and, and working over a hot stove all day, this was just one of the valuable lessons Henry Hines learned from Anna. People loved horseradish because it made bad food good and good food better. Hines realized that people would pay for horseradish sauce and other things that were labor-intensive in the kitchen. Uh, anything that would save people time was something that they saw value in. When the Civil War ended, Henry Hines was barely 20 years old. American life was changing rapidly, and Henry was ready to change with it. H.W. Brands is a history professor at the University of Texas at Austin. After the Civil War, the lure of the cities, the lure of city life, is very strong. It's appealing. It pulls people off farms. This meant people were no longer growing their own food or living near where their food was grown. 
So for the first time in the United States, the supplying of food, food becomes an industry, it becomes a big business. We talk about farm to table today as a novelty, but that just was the standard prior to the Civil War. Yahuru Williams is a historian at the University of St. Thomas. What you have in the aftermath of the Civil War are thinkers, industrialists, who are really applying the scientific method to industry and asking some fundamental questions about how can we think about being more efficient, effective, accountable and responsible in what we deliver, how we deliver, when we deliver, and how to increase our profits. Hines wasn't one of those men, yet, but he wanted to be. Rather than stay in his father's brick factory, he hoped to create his own food business. He needed money to get started, so he partnered with a rich friend from his bricklaying days, Clarence Noble. Hines, Noble, and company expanded rapidly. He started buying more and more produce. He bought out whole farms as far away as Indiana. I mean, to say Henry Hines was ahead of his time is an understatement. John Hines is the author of Fast Food Maniac. The genius of Hines wasn't just the vegetables that he grew in his garden since he was a child. It was finding products that people would be excited about and knowing how to market them. Hines's business was going well until disaster struck. The Panic of 1873. People called it the Great Depression, before the Great Depression we think of today. By 1875, people were going out of business all over the country. Heinz fell victim to this panic or depression. Heinz overstretched his credit. He was unable to pay back his lenders and fell into bankruptcy. He did pay his employees, but he was thrown into jail and lost his own home. His family was evicted and their property sold off. You can only imagine the Hines family in waiting for the sheriff to arrive, that knock on the door, and then to be evicted from their home and to have all of their furniture sold out on the street at auction. Hines's business partner, Clarence Noble, refused to help him. Things looked bleak. Sitting in jail, Heinz had hit rock bottom. Heinz may have forgiven Clarence Noble for abandoning him during the Depression, but they were never friends again. Andy Masick. He vowed then, never again would he go into a partnership with outsiders. It would be a family operation from here on. And with the help of his family, Henry Hines made a fresh start. His wife Sally sold a piece of property she'd inherited to help fund the new company. His brother John and his cousin Frederick were the names on the label, F and J Hines Company. His brother John was mechanically inclined. He invented a great pickle sorter and was chief of operations, but it was his cousin, Frederick, who was the agricultural genius. Everyone in the family pitched in. Anna went back to her kitchen and started making preserves again. And behind it all, H.J. Hines ran the show. After the bankruptcy, he was determined to restore his reputation. He picked himself up, he dusted himself off, and he started over. He was like a phoenix rising from the ashes and Henry Hines devoted himself to his company, now his family's company, even more intensely than before. He worked harder than ever. 
16-hour days. Some of his family thought he would work himself to death. But that hard work paid off. Hines paid back his creditors in full and emerged from bankruptcy. And he was ready to try something new. He started to expand beyond horseradish and experiment with new products. There's vinegars and there's all kinds of amazing things that he would tinker with and play with. Adam Richman is a television host and author of Straight Up Tasty. So Henry Hines was way ahead of his time, offering people not just one product, but a multitude of products and tons of variations. And he decided to try his hand making a popular sauce at the time, known as ketchup. Hines didn't invent ketchup. Hines did ketchup better than anyone else. In fact, that was H.J. Hines' slogan, to do a common thing uncommonly well. This wasn't quite the ketchup we know today. People made the sauce from a wide variety of ingredients, such as oysters, mushrooms, and all sorts of fruits and vegetables. Heinz's first ketchup was made from walnuts. He squeezed the walnuts to get the juice out. He pulverized them. He added spices. It was pretty good. But then he found tomatoes. Today, ketchup is synonymous with tomatoes, and tomato ketchup is everywhere. But at the time, tomatoes were not very popular. Smooth, round, hybrid tomatoes like the ones we eat today were only developed a few years earlier. And tomatoes were not commonly eaten in the United States in the mid-1800s. He had to get his own farms going to produce enough tomatoes to make the ketchup that he wanted. Heinz discovered that if he made his ketchup with ripe tomatoes and plenty of salt, sugar, and vinegar, he didn't need artificial preservatives. Most ketchups at the time were preserved with chemicals. To get more tomatoes, Heinz experimented with sourcing them from warmer climates. He developed farms in the south so the growing seasons could be stretched. He needed to produce year-round. With supply from tomato farms across the country, Heinz was able to produce all the ketchup he wanted. He introduced innovations into other products, too. The Heinz pickle sorting machine allowed consumers to choose between five different sizes of pickle. Heinz pickle barrels had glass tops so customers could see the pickles before they bought them. Business was so good, in just 12 years he was able to buy out his brother and cousin. He rebranded the company after himself alone, the H.J. Heinz Company. People started asking for the Heinz brand. He was the first to really brand a corporation, a business. The company was starting to be successful, thanks in part to Heinz's savvy marketing. He advertised on billboards, streetcars, and railroad boxcars. He branded his delivery wagons by painting all of them white with Heinz in green letters and only allowed them to be pulled by black horses. Heinz was an intuitive marketer. He understood branding before branding was a thing. And he always said, you know, a good product, packaged well, will find its own marketplace. Most companies at this time didn't have formal branding or even consistent packaging. Big companies, whether they were selling shoes or food, uh, would make all kinds of products and package them differently. But Heinz knew he needed something unique that customers could identify with his high-quality product. One day, he was out traveling the city. He was on a train and saw a shoe store that advertised 21 kinds of shoes. So he loved that. 
And he sat there and played with numbers until he said, what's a memorable number? And he said, I want Heinz 57. By this point, Heinz actually had more than 60 products, but he felt the unique number matched his one-of-a-kind business. I think he had a clear mission. He had a great mind for marketing, and he believed in the purity of the product, he believed in the inventiveness of the product, and he believed in himself. He wanted to make money, he wanted his business to be successful, but he also wanted to make a pure, hygienic, healthy product. Heinz wanted to distinguish himself from less healthy and less flavorful alternatives. Heinz really cared about how his products were displayed at grocery stores. In fact, he would buy back products that he felt didn't look good or had outlived their shelf life. This was a rarity at the time. The competition was putting ketchup in barrels and stone crockery. Sometimes they'd use brown glass or green glass bottles. They wanted to disguise what they were really selling because it was often disgusting or even rotten. But Heinz wanted customers to see what they were getting. He came up with another innovation that is standard practice today. He used clear glass bottles. No one else was doing that. That's what Heinz became known for, the best product, the cleanest, the healthiest product. With more people moving to cities, it was harder to know where your food was coming from. When one slaughtered his own chickens himself, then you knew what you were getting. You knew if the chicken was sick or not. H.W. Brands. When people move into the cities, their life becomes much more removed from the basic sources of their supply. They don't know who the butcher is. And so they had to take somebody else's word for things. And that word was not always to be trusted. It was really the age of hucksterism, and it was all about marketing your food. You just told the customer whatever they wanted to hear. Zelati Meyer is a culinary historian and reporter at Fast Company. And of course, they used all sorts of additives and tricks and smells to make things look better, taste better, smell better. And there's a strong temptation in a competitive market to cut costs and to use filler. And sometimes the filler would be edible stuff like oats. But sometimes it would be something much worse. They would use coal tar and ketchup, for example. They would put formaldehyde in rotting meat. They would put red lead in cheddar cheese, again, to affect the color because they just wanted to sell the stuff. No food group was safe from these tricks. Green vegetables were colored with uh, copper or were cooked in copper to make them look more green. You would find stones in peas or sawdust in flour or even baked goods um, that were sold from bakeries were adulterated. Culinary historian Sarah Wasberg Johnson. This is really sort of the wild west of food laws because there really weren't any food regulations um, at this time. And the opinion at the time was that it was really up to the housewife to determine through her own smarts and education, what was good and what wasn't good. But it was hard for the average consumer to figure out what they were buying. If you were the only store in town uh, and you were unscrupulous, um, you could probably get away with it, which did happen quite frequently in larger cities. There was little food labeling at that time and no laws about food quality. So literally, because you have no regulation and you have no national standards, uh, Unscrupulous business persons were free to get away with a lot of things. And in some cases, even when that produced death, they weren't liable. 
Yahuru Williams. Because there was no regulation, there was no law against it, and so basically it was buyer beware. Newspapers printed shocking stories about adulterated and contaminated foods. Libby O'Connell is a cultural historian and the author of The American Plate. There was cynicism, there was doubt about the quality of food that was being available because of these horror stories. And Henry Hines saw that there was a market for products that people could easily determine were safe. He wanted to show the um, consumer that they could see the ingredients by looking at the bottle. He actually used very few preservatives and later in ketchup, for example, no preservatives. Heinz's attitude was, if we can deliver a safe product, if we can inspire consumer confidence in this way, we'll be in a position not only to dominate the market, but also, and this was very important to Heinz, to produce a product that actually was of high quality and high substance. Heinz's innovations were not only good for consumers' health, they were good for business. His talent for marketing expanded the company's reputation as a source of pure foods that customers could trust. So when Heinz received an invitation to display his wares at the 1893 World's Fair, he prepared a lavish exhibit. But the fair wasn't the international marketing opportunity he hoped it would be. At least, not at first. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs and medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Chicago, 1893. Henry J. Hines was going to show his products to a global audience for the first time. Andy Masick. Hines' products were already well-known in the United States in 1893, but with the World's Fair, he soon launched onto the world stage. Hines showed up at the exhibition hall armed with a staff of saleswomen. But only foreign and official state exhibits were allowed in the main area. Heinz and all the other commercial American exhibitors were away up on the second floor. Heinz had pyramids of ketchup and pickles and horseradish. Nobody was taking the 45 steps it took to get up to the second floor of the exhibit hall. So the innovative marketer came up with a gimmick. He went back down to the first floor and scattered tickets all over the ground. The ticket said the holder could claim a free prize on the second floor. People started to pick them up and head to the second floor to see what it was all about. It was such a success, they had to call in the police to control the crowds. The floors of the exhibit hall sagged. 
The free prize was just a single pickle, but it didn't matter. It worked. And Heinz's clever marketing scheme didn't just benefit himself. At the end of the fair, all of the American exhibitors on the second floor of the exhibit hall thought that Heinz had saved their lives, saved their businesses. They all pitched in, bought him a silver punch bowl, and had his name engraved on it. Fresh off of this success at the World's Fair, Heinz was ready to take his business to the next level. He decided to move operations to Pittsburgh. He built a large complex of 17 factories, each producing different condiments, using an innovative production style. Before Henry Ford had an assembly line for his Model T's, H.J. Hines had an assembly line for food. The assembly line was the result of the idea that if you're making lots of one thing, if you can make it absolutely identically, then you can make it at a lower cost. So economies of scale. H.W. Brands. This idea of basically doing the same thing over and over again, when individuals could become specialized in one thing, it makes them better at it, but perhaps most importantly, it makes them cheaper at it. Heinz used an early version of an assembly line, long before it was in mainstream use. Yahuru Williams. Henry Heinz was a pioneer in every sense of the word, and we can see that most clearly in what he does with the factory, uh, the spaces in which his employees will work. Heinz was part of a larger wave of innovation in Pittsburgh. And you get men like Westinghouse and Heinz all living in the same neighborhoods and sharing ideas. It turned Pittsburgh really into the nation's first innovation hub. But there was a difference between Heinz and the other captains of industry of the day. These so-called robber barons got rich off of terrible working conditions for their employees. There have always been rich people. There have always been powerful people. But the robber barons are something somewhat new. Jeffrey Engel is a history professor at Southern Methodist University. They're able to concentrate their wealth and extend it across gray areas. It's not just that you own a company, you own a railroad. You can affect change across the entire country. You can determine whether or not people have fuel throughout the entire country. You can determine whether people read the newspaper throughout the entire country. And factory owners can have much more control over their workers than ever before. What you're really doing is having the machine dictate the pace of work. Um, basically, it's an exhausting experience for most people that they suddenly, for the first time in their lives, have no control, not so much over their hours, but over their minutes and over their seconds. But unlike the robber barons, Heinz wanted to create safer working conditions. Andy Masick. Other industrialists had to be forced to do the right thing. H.J. Heinz did it because it was the right thing. And doing the right thing for workers turned out to benefit the company, too. Everybody thought the Heinz plant was the best place in Pittsburgh to work. Even the unions who, who were critical of the robber barons and industrialists of Pittsburgh visited the Heinz plant and said, he's doing the right thing. He's taking care of people. The Heinz factory complex wasn't just a place for work. There were places for employees to relax, too. There were gymnasiums for the employees, libraries, recreation facilities. There was even a rooftop garden for the employees. And it was much safer than other factories of the day, thanks to Heinz's early introduction of electricity. Thomas Edison had invented the first practical light bulb two decades earlier, but most factories still didn't use electricity. 
So they were noisy, they were dangerous, they were often dirty. Many of them were powered, fired by coal. And so there was coal dust all around and the smoke. There was almost no conception that air pollution was something that could be alleviated or should be alleviated. Many people at the time were still uncertain about electricity, a new technology that was hard to understand. There were some people who thought that electricity was uncomfortably close to magic because things would happen invisibly. They couldn't see the forces at work. But Heinz saw that this new technology was the wave of the future. His factories are powered by electricity at a time when most people are still using coal or gas. Libby O'Connell. He wants a clean environment for his workers. He wants a clean environment for his products. And he's willing to take a leap into the future and bring in electricity at a time when people were still scared. In the early 1900s, Heinz finally took his company international. He began exporting baked beans to England. They proved so popular that he built two factories there. Heinz baked beans are popular in the U.S., but in the U.K., they are still a beloved staple today. Back in the United States, Heinz expanded his fight for safer foods. He changed the food packaging itself. Canned foods were starting to become popular at the time, but the cans were soldered together with lead. Heinz figured out that lead solder wasn't good for you. It was poisonous, especially when it came into contact with acidic foods. So Heinz and the Heinz engineers developed seamless or solderless cans. Henry Heinz began working to take his company's health and safety innovations industry-wide. Consumers were having to consume stuff they had no control over and they had no recourse in case they got something bad. H.W. Brands. And so the idea of consumer protection for the first time sets in because millions of Americans all of a sudden occupy this niche in the economy of consumers. And consumers need protecting in an industrial era. Heinz became a part of the push for better food safety regulations. This was part of the broader progressive movement at the time. Jeffrey Engel. The progressive movement at the first decades of the 20th century is really a desire to round out the rough edges of capitalism, of democracy, and industrialization all coming together at the same time. Food safety had been a concern before, but by the early 1900s, the issue could no longer be ignored. Enough people became upset by this, enough exposés had been written about the food industry that the federal government stepped in and took measures to, to rein this in. Heinz was a leader in the fight for the Pure Food and Drug Act, the law that would establish the Food and Drug Administration. The U.S. Congress finally passed it in 1906. That was critical. That changed everything. That forced his competitors to provide a healthy product, just as he was already doing. The Heinz Company continued researching and hybridizing tomatoes. In the 1950s and 60s, the growth of fast food chains, with their focus on burgers and fries, created a new demand for ketchup. In 1967, Heinz boosted sales even further when it introduced single-serving ketchup packets for restaurants. Heinz now manufactures products on every continent but Antarctica. In 2015, the H.J. Heinz Company merged with Kraft Foods. Today, Kraft Heinz is the third largest food and beverage company in North America. It had more than $26 billion in sales in 2020. Henry J. Heinz's legacy lives on in his products. I think when you look at a bottle of Heinz ketchup, whether you see it in a packet, whether you get it 
in the supermarket, whether you see it on the table at a diner or at a burger restaurant, at the end of the day, you know what that flavor is going to be. But Heinz's impact reaches far beyond his own company, to the safety of all the food we buy in the United States. The way we eat today was shaped by H.J. Heinz. We now go to stores and we can pick out the foods we want. We can see the food inside the container. We can rely on the food being what it says it is. On the next episode of The Food That Built America, the unlikely creator of the Popsicle, an 11-year-old boy who accidentally makes an icy treat on a cold night when he leaves a mixing stick and a glass of sugar water on his porch. For years, Frank Epperson makes the frozen-flavored treats for his family. A lot of people, they discover their passion in food as a hobby. Then he decides to start a business. So he gets an ice cream maker and repurposes it to make the first popsicle. Epperson starts selling his popsicles at amusement parks and outdoor venues. There's so many people outside doing outdoor activities and doing summer things, and they are in desperate need of relief and something to refresh them. Then attempts to take his product nationwide. A man who is not a chemist, not a food scientist, not even a chef, is risking everything to create a frozen treat. And overplays his hand in the process. And suddenly, Popsicle tries to get a little too clever for his own good and goes up against the juggernaut of good humor. But creates an unforgettable staple of summertime and childhood. I think in a way it makes it sort of perfect sense that, you know, an 11-year-old creates the Popsicle because it is such a, you know, beloved by children everywhere to this day. This episode of the Food That Built America podcast was written and produced by Sean Braswell and Julia Linus Goodman. Cecily Mesa Martinez produced and Maeve McGoran produced and edited. Jesse Katz, Jim Pascarella, and Mary Donahue were executive producers. Sound designed by Chris Hoff. Special thanks to McKamey Lynn and Tracy Moran. The Food That Built America was originally produced by Lucky 8 TV for the History Channel. Make sure to subscribe to The Food That Built America on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For more great history podcasts, check out History This Week from History or Flashback from Aussie.